What is up, y'all? Welcome to the Zachary Crockett Podcast, where we talk about all things. And today, essentially, in this podcast is the first one, and we're going to be kicking off a few topics of the day. The intention of this podcast is to cover all things spiritual, emotional, mental, manly, and just awesome. And today, what I want to talk about, first and foremost is how I'm embarking on a new journey where I will be recording a podcast every day for the next 365 days covering all aspects of my life, where I'm at today, how I'm feeling, and what the next steps are to get me where I need to be. The intention of this podcast is to lift people up, have them reach the best aspects of themselves as well as entertain them at the same time. So sit back, relax, or if you're getting a workout on, push hard because we're about to start the podcast. First and foremost, what I want to talk about today is essentially where I am located. So at the moment, I am located in Quito, Ecuador. My wife and I have been embarking on a journey of sorts for the last few months. Spent two months in Mexico, San Miguel de Ente. It is a must, as well as Playa de Carmen, which is good, but maybe not so much time there. And now we have transcended our little pilgrimage to Quito, Ecuador. It is my wife and my dog, Nelly and I. And um, we've been enjoying it so far, but what's really interesting about Ecuador essentially is the weather, okay? Now the weather here is just ridiculous. I just got done working out and I went from taking my shirt off to putting my shirt on to putting a hoodie on. And the weather is constantly changing here because of the location. So essentially what makes Ecuador so interesting is the fact that it's on the equator. That's where the name Ecuador comes from. And what happens is the globe essentially pooches out and there's like a little belly to it. So you kind of get an interesting assortment of weather because you are closest to the sun. Fun fact about Ecuador, Chimbrazo, which is a mountain at 20,000 feet is the closest to the sun because of this pooch. But man, does the weather change. I mean, I am going to just give you an overview of the day just so you can see kind of what happens here. Because in the morning, when you wake up, it's usually cool, potentially in the 50s. And you're really trying to determine if the sun comes out. Which is so interesting about the homes here is none of them have any heat or air conditioning. So they are just kind of left to the elements, which means you don't ever know what you're going to get. And if you're standing in the sun, it's warm. But if you're in the shade, it is very cold. And that's kind of where the weather's been. But, you know, the beauty of this country is just without words. I mean, it gets a lot of rain, so it's very lush. But because it's in the equator, it's in a medium point. So if you can imagine, you kind of experience all of the kind of um, all of the climates within one day. You can have cold, you can have hot, you can have rainy, and then you can have thunderstorms that usually come in around 5 p.m. I know this happened to us last Sunday and it was a really good lesson in Ecuador weather because it was a beautiful day. We spent the whole day in the pool hanging out with my wife and her family was going to come over, so we thought it'd be a good idea to kind of chalk up the barbecue, get things rolling and go from there. But essentially what had happened was is the weather rolled in and had a different idea. And as I was in the middle of barbecuing some delicious burgers and brats, essentially not necessarily brats, but sausages, Ecuadorian sausages, which are interesting within themselves. 
a crazy storm came in and it was just ridiculous. The biggest storm we have seen is right, go figure, in the middle of me barbecuing. The rain came and luckily the barbecue pit was covered, but the storm was insane. So that's kind of an intro to where I'm at right now. Um, today the weather is good. It's Saturday um, and we're just kind of enjoying ourselves. But what's really interesting is I took the liberty to watch a documentary. Um, you know, I love documentaries about Woodstock 99 and man, was it interesting. Essentially, you know, when Woodstock 99 happened, I was probably only around nine or 10 years old. And I remember watching on MTV for the MTV News all the different things that were happening. And I just remember it being kind of like this moment where people went crazy. You know, obviously Limp Bizkit was one of the biggest bands, Korn, you know, and it was kind of an interesting time with, with the transition of the century going into Y2K. And the comparisons between Woodstock 69 and Woodstock 1999 were really interesting. Um, just kind of going into it and just showing different aspects of how people are, number one, and number two, corporate influences. You know, essentially with the Woodstock 90, the Woodstock 69, you get the same corporate influences, but there was much more of a harmonious environment. You know, with a lot of stuff going on with Vietnam, understanding the climax of the people's mentality to where, you know, they kind of wanted to come together, be in peace, take drugs, make love, you know, those kind of things and interact with the music and be really unified and unified in a way where they can truly enjoy themselves. And they're also kind of at one with their environments. And you kind of look at how this is happening with the documentary with one of the founders of it, Michael Landry, who had passed away this year in January, and he's kind of going over it. He was the founder of the first Woodstock and Woodstock 94, which is a little bit more of a debacle, and Woodstock 99, um, which Woodstock 99 ended up selling close to 400,000 tickets at around 150 to $200 a ticket, making the estimated value for tickets alone at $60 million, which to me is just insane in the early 90s. And that doesn't even add in the, the vendor contracts and different things that were going on with it. But within the documentary, you really see two worlds colliding, one of this corporate you know, kind of money-making into a younger generation that isn't going to be really pushed around by this corporate influence. And throughout the documentary, you know, goes through the days and kind of interacts with the temperature and the climax and how everything kind of slowly gets ratcheted up. And it was just really fascinating to see different aspects of society, how, you know, the generation of 1969 is different from the generation of 1999, number one. Number two, it is a money-making venture. You know, the corporate influences, they're trying to ride off the back of Woodstock 69 to turn a profit, you know, and they, and they want to kind of capture the essence of what Woodstock is. And number three, you couldn't have more different landscapes. You know, essentially, it takes place in Rome, New York. And what's really interesting is for Woodstock 99, they put it on a military base which is decommissioned and they're trying to influence and have this kind of aspect using it. 
And so the environment in itself is a little bit awkward. And I have worked actually in music festivals before. I used to work at Wakarusa doing the parking. And, you know, we would work close to, I worked 24 hours a day one time parking cars for this festival with just 70,000 people. And when you think about that in comparison to 400,000, I can't even imagine the craziness. I mean, you can't even really control 70,000 people. And then you influence it with the drugs. You influence it with kind of all the music and the environment and the scenes. And it just, you can see how it could potentially just be a crockpot of disaster. Um, But transitioning back into the context, you know, you kind of see how they're trying to create the environment with Woodstock 99. And what happens is, you know, what happens within this environment is they bottom out on the contracts and they subcontract out the food and the water and kind of the facilities to subcontractors that can kind of manipulate the price points and they don't have any control over it. So you see a lot of the products inflated, but you know, this was during 1999. So just imagine a bottle of water was probably 65 cents and they were charging $4. So Take that into context now. If you're buying a bottle of water for three or four dollars and you go in there and it's close to seventeen dollars for a bottle of water, you'd be like, What the heck? Or even twenty dollars for a bottle of water, you think you'd be taking advantage of because they didn't allow anybody to bring in any types of water or anything that they needed. They had to buy everything from the vendor. Number one, this is really creating the environment. This is really creating the user experiences to be kind of price gouging. So you get price gouging going on within the people. Okay. You get 400,000. You don't have the security needed. And it kind of just creates this whole cluster. And, you know, with the music being different from 1999, what's really interesting is how you see musical influences kind of impact the people's mindsets to where they become more aggressive and, Essentially, what they end up doing is burning everything down and destroying it on the last day. And it's just, you know, the people who ran it really have no ownership of how they organized it. They're blaming it on a few bad apples. But it's like if you're going to have a music, if you're going to have something like Woodstock going on and you're not going to make sure the users have the best experience, then why even do it? You know, I mean, obviously you want to turn a profit. I have no problem with that. But you know, you want to create an environment where people come and can enjoy themselves. So it was really interesting watching that and then kind of thinking about of the context of like Firefly, which was another music festival where it just kind of went sideways. You know, like I said, I worked at Wakarusa and Wakarusa was crazy. You know, it was a great festival in Arkansas and we were actually subcontracted out once again kind of how these festivals do. They go from big contract to subcontract to subcontract like a pyramid scheme. But the company I was working for at the time subcontracted us out to do the um, actual parking. And there is no better way to explain it. But when you are working a music festival, you come like you. There's just so many people who are entitled when they come there. And they just want to do whatever they want to do. And they don't really care about the circumstances. I mean, I have a few stories here. You know, essentially what we were, I was a paid employee and we were asked to run volunteers and put them at parking places. And one time this kid had taken way too many drugs. I don't know what happened, but he partied all night 
And to his credit, he reported to the tent, to the booth. But when he got there, he laid under the table all day, literally sleeping under the table. And when it was time for him to kind of have his post be filled, you know, he kind of woke up and he couldn't do anything. And he looked at me and he said, don't judge me, bro. And uh, we died laughing because it was truly a hilarious moment to see this kid just completely burn out from the festival, not even day three, just I would already asking not to be judged. But kind of another crazy story that happened and is there was a moment where, you know, essentially when when you get to the last day of the festival, that's really when the craziest thing is going to happen because everything's winding down. The energy, the energy is changing and you don't really know what to expect. So for this constant, for this kind of moment, what was happening is I was talking with a few of my friends and, you know, obviously we have golf carts and radios, if you didn't know, and it's pretty awesome driving around a music festival with a golf cart and a radio. Like I don't ever think I felt more entitled and powerful in my life, but that's beside the point I digress. And we get a call over the radio and it's like someone has stolen golf carts. So... We're like, oh my gosh, someone had stolen golf carts in the music festival and they're driving everywhere and they're creating all this pandemonium and we're hearing it over the radio like, we've got a problem, they're near this food tent, they just knocked down the wall, everything's going wrong. And it's really just kind of, you know, we're just listening and we are entertained and then it just went quiet. So like it was quiet for about five minutes and we're like, what happened? So we radioed in and we were like, hey, you know, what what happened? And they're like, stand down, no problem. And we're like, well, do we need to watch out for anything? And they literally said, no, uh, it was actually Mumford and Sons who had stolen the golf carts. And obviously, if your headliner steals the golf carts, what are you going to do? But what's even crazier is fast forward, I'm living in China working with the Peace Corps. And the State Department comes into the city I'm living in, Lanzhou. And they're sponsoring a music tour with Abby Washborn, who was at the time married to Bela Fleck, a very big bass player. And they were coming into town and they were just trying to spot out the city. And because we were Peace Corps, kind of boots on the ground, we could show them the city, show them the best bars and give them an idea what's going on. Well, I'm entertaining... Abby Washburn's band and this gentleman comes in from Austin and he was with Abby Washburn's band and he was touring with them and he was an amazing fiddle player. I don't remember his name. Um, I'm sure I could look it up and put it in the notes, but long story short, I literally tell him that story instantly, you know, kind of going about it because we talked a little bit about Wakarusa and how much he liked it and he went swimming and he really enjoyed it and he looked at me and he goes, yeah, like stealing those golf carts was my idea. I'm like, what are you talking about? And no lie, this guy was the fiddle player for Mumford and & Sons. And it just really blew my mind that here we were in northern China, okay? We were literally talking about an event that probably only two people in the whole country was in. And him and I both had two different experiences of the same moment. You know, and, and from there, it was just like really interesting how it kind of spun into that. And, you know, we had a moment, obviously, we had a few drinks 
And, you know, I showed him the city, but what a great guy. He went on to tell me that he actually taught Mumford & Sons how to make breakfast burritos. We've been touring with them in England. And I remember I came home for a little bit of a time, and I was at my dad's house. And I was watching the Red Rock show of Mumford & Sons, and sure enough, the fiddle player was right there playing. So it was just really something unique. But... Essentially, that's the podcast, y'all. You know, with this being the first, I'm just kind of dipping my toe with different content ideas. Please let me know what you think. You can follow me at the Dyslexic Alpha on Instagram. Um, and I will continue to post for the next 365 days to see what happens posting a podcast every single day. So thank you all.